say goodbye to every sin, I am forgiven. That's good words to hear, isn't it? I'm forgiven. Good way to start. Well, I know probably all of y'all heard about what's going on in the world and this thing that happened in the past week or so with Iran, and it's kind of scary, isn't it? I have a son in the army, and it kind of scares me when I hear about, well, we're sending some troops over there and these kind of things. But I just want y'all to be in prayer for our leaders in our nation. I know we hear a lot of stuff on the news, and uh, people try to be the first to tell us what's really happening and what's really going on. And um, I would imagine that um, uh, people that are in intelligence and know these kind of things know all kinds of things that they can't possibly share with the rest of the world, and they have to make incredibly hard decisions every day based on that information. And instead of being critical, I think we ought to be in prayer for those people that are making those critical decisions that uh, have to do with not only our country, but the other countries we're involved in. So I want to encourage you all to, to pray for our leaders, whether you like them or not. You know, because sometimes we don't have a choice in those things. We got to vote, but we don't necessarily get our, the way we vote, but we still ought to be praying regardless of who it is. Now, I say all that not to get political with you, but I did read an interesting article this week. Uh, from a uh, Iranian Christian who's been a Christian for a long time, and uh, he has some perspective even to the point that he does a ministry uh, to underground churches in Iran, and he estimates there are over one million Christians in Iran. That surprised me. We know it's very heavily Islam there in the Muslim world, but over a million people are our brothers and sisters. Did you hear that? Our brothers and sisters. And that's concerning when you think about some of the things that are going on. But he says this. His name is Lazarus Yeganazar. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing his wife uh, his name uh, right. And his wife Maggie uh, were married in Tehran shortly before the Islamic Revolution, which happened in about 1979. And they had a love for their country, for the Christian church in Iran, as well as they had a successful engineering business, and they actually stayed in their home during the eight-year Iran and Iraq war. But after that war um, ended, they uh, immigrated to the United Kingdom, where they began sending money to friends and to the church there in Iran. And they eventually started a ministry called 222 Ministries International, and it's a church planning and training network still run out of Lazarus converted garage that includes satellite television broadcasts and more than 50 underground churches in Iran. And his brother Sam founded another ministry called Alam Ministries and his nephew David now leads that current, current outreach to Iran. So again, he says, suggests that there's over 1 million Christians now in Iran and he says, you know what, I'm not surprised that this happened. We know in Iran how volatile our government has been over the years. Everybody does. We know how these dictators come in and they want to take over and they start alienating people and there starts to be persecution of not only Christians but of other people. And if you don't follow what the dictator's saying, then you can be killed and there's just a lot of tension there constantly. So he says, I'm not surprised. And he says... <clears throat> He knew that something like this would be happening for years, and he believes that if war comes, it will com uh, create a humanitarian crisis, but it also will be an open door for evangelism. He says it will be a tsunami of disaster and a tsunami of opportunity, and he's been around it enough to probably know. So somebody asking the question, how did, and maybe you probably wondered the answer to this question too, how is it that Islam became so popular, became so dominant in the Middle East because the, the church was there for a long time. 
the Christian church was there over the centuries. But he answers that question by saying this. He goes, people lose sight of what happened in the past. Why in the 7th century was Islam able to walk in and people surrender to it so easily? He said the church had been there for hundreds of years. He's talking about the Christian church. And he said it had been there for hundreds of years. But every time Christians became rich and powerful, they subjugated others and dismissed them. The Christian church became landowners and levied taxes on people. And we forget about that reality and the impact it has. When we lose sight of what God has called us to be, light and salt, we lose our influence. I believe the church down to this day has not figured out how to do godly governance inside a nation. Every time we mingle with politics and governance, we become corrupt, like Elisha's servants Gehazi. Now, I don't know if you know that reference to Elisha's servants Gehazi. Some of you may or may not. But in the Old Testament, there's a, a story about this prophet Elisha, and there was a uh, a military leader from a different country who had leprosy, and he heard that there was this prophet that could heal. And so he went to Elisha, and he came to his door, and Elisha said, Yeah, go wash, dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be healed. And he was mad. He was like, Don't you know who I am? I'm the commander of an army, and you're going to tell me to go dip myself in that, that, that river? I'm not going to do that. And, you know, his, his, his handlers kind of goes, Look, you need to calm down. This is the guy who says, You know, if it'll heal, you do what he says. So he goes, and he's healed. And after he's healed, he comes back to Elisha and he, uh, he says, Hey, I want to give you some gold and some silver and some, some clothes and some fancy stuff for healing. And he goes, No, no, that's not why I did this to get things. Just go in peace. You've been healed. God has done this through me, but God has done this. Now go in peace. Well, Elisha's um, uh, assistant named Gehazi was not happy about this. He goes, I can't believe he didn't take any money. I didn't, can't believe he didn't take any of that stuff. He should have taken some of that stuff. So he went running after the the guy's caravan and stopped him. He goes, oh, yeah, Elisha uh, said that uh, he changed his mind, and we've got some people who need some things, so could you give us some silver and some of those clothes? Oh, I'll be glad to, and he gave it to him. And he comes back and didn't think Elisha knew. Well, Elisha's a prophet. He's pretty tight with God. He kind of knows these things. And he goes, where have you been? And he goes, oh, nowhere. He goes, well, what about all that silver and those new clothes you have? And he says, you know that's not what we're about. And because you've done this, now the leprosy that he had will be upon you. And immediately the man had leprosy. So this is what this man is referring to. He says, when, when, when we, um, he says, every time we mingle with politics and governance, we've become corrupt like that, cleansing, a, that story of cleansing the name, and we seek wealth, then we become lepers. When we're seeking wealth out of that, instead of the salvation of people, we become lepers. And when Islam came to Iran, it was not as if the church had not had the opportunity. The church missed the opportunity. So one day Iran will be more open to Christianity. And the way we behave as Christians, he says, when that happens will determine the future of the church in Iran. And if we mess it up, it will be an unforgivable act. Now this is a guy who's a little scared about what's going on in his own country. But it's also a guy who says, hey, look, I'm a Christian and I recognize the way we act the way we practice our life every day makes an impact on people. And when you say you're a follower of Christ, but then you go in somewhere and you start subjugating people and you start you know, doing things for money, people see that. And all of a sudden they go, what is your real thing? And that's what he says, in his opinion, is why Islam took over and Christianity did not because of the actions of Christians. That's kind of sobering, isn't it? And I think we ought to be aware that we have a million brothers and sisters over in Iran that we need to be praying for and hoping that out of this situation that hopefully the, you know, everything will calm down and that through this maybe Christianity can start to spread and grow and change that country of Iran that desperately needs that. Well, 
All this reminds me of something that Jesus said to his disciples in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 9 today. But it's important when we look at a passage and we look at just a particular text or passage that we look at the background behind what's going on leading up into this passage. And I want us to do that today. Many times in the accounts of Jesus' life that we read about in the Gospels, Jesus uses a situation, a question, something that happens in real life in real time to make a, a very profound teaching point. And this is no different in this situation. So we're going to look at Mark 9, verses 42 through 50. But before that, I want to kind of share what was happening before Jesus says what he's going to say in our text today. Jesus had been traveling in the area with his, his 12 disciples and these people that followed him. And he had overheard his disciples. You know, I guess when you're traveling, you kind of get in pockets of people. And he was a little uh, distant from them, and they were kind of together. And he heard them arguing about some stuff. And so he questioned them about it. But they were arguing about who was the greatest. So Jesus goes, hey, what were you guys arguing about back there? Well, nobody said anything because they knew what they were arguing about. They knew how Jesus felt about humility and that kind of thing. So nobody didn't say anything. But Jesus knew that they knew that he knew. Does that make sense? He knew what they were arguing about. That's why it's a question. But nobody wanted to ante up and say that's what they were doing. So Jesus is a little frustrated because, you know, we've been talking about this kingdom of God, and it's different. It's not a kingdom that y'all in y'all's minds have that somehow because you know I can work miracles, you know I'm from God, and I, I know y'all believe that, and I know you trust me and believe in me, but you think this kingdom is going to be where I'm going to be like King David. I'm going to be on the throne again, and it's going to be big, and we're going to be in the spotlight, and you're, because you're my disciples, are going to be in that spotlight. That was their mentality, and Jesus saying, y'all are missing what this uh, kingdom is all about. So he says, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last. And he has to be a servant of all. That's probably not what they wanted to hear. No, no, we want to be first. We want to be popular like you, Jesus, and all that. But he's saying no. And then Jesus took a little child that I don't know was you know in the, in the mix there. And he brought the little child over and he put him in his arms and said, he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. And so Jesus is letting them know, I want to keep you all focused because you're getting off focus again on what God's kingdom is all about. And there probably was this period of silence as he's saying, you got to be, you want to be first, you got to be last. You got to be a servant of all. And you've got this little kid who in that culture, children need to grow up as fast as they can. They're not important. Jesus doesn't have time for that. But Jesus is saying, no, I do have time for children. I have time for everybody. So there's this period of silence maybe that Jesus is kind of letting this sink in. What their perception of what the kingdom should be and what it's actually going to be is two different things. So John, one of the disciples we know, after Jesus says this, says this. Jesus, yes, John, what do you have for him? He goes, teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we stopped him because he was not one of us. And I'm just kind of like, what does that have to do with what Jesus was just talking about? And I'm sure there was some awkward silence there, and maybe a few seriously John looks, like I can't believe you just said that. But it was interesting. Teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we stopped him because he wasn't one of us. What does that say? Oh, this is an exclusive club here. And we would rather that guy not do it, and we'd rather somebody continue to have a demon-possessed life than for this guy who's not one of us to drive that out. And Jesus has got to be shaking his head and going, you're just not getting it. And he says this, do not stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can, in the next moment, say anything bad about me. For whoever is not for us is against us. I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not 
lose his reward. Jesus is going to wipe the stock out. Now, what's interesting, y'all, about this is a few chapters before this, they were trying to drive out a demon, and they couldn't drive it out. And Jesus had to come and say, this is a pretty serious issue, and it has to do with your faith, and it has to do with your prayer. And Jesus had to come in and do this. Why couldn't we drive out the demon? But yet they run into a guy who's not one of them and who is able to drive out demons because obviously of his faith, and they want to shut him down. Now, it's easy for me or you to point the finger and go, yeah, what a bunch of jerks. They just didn't get it. But, y'all, sometimes we do that as Christians, don't we? Sometimes we do that in the church. We kind of act like it's an exclusive thing, and it's only a club of good do-gooders or something. And it's not. Jesus is saying, no, this kingdom is so much bigger than we really realize. So then Jesus goes into our text today. And if if we can have that up on the screen or you can follow along on your Bibles or your personal devices, um, we're going to look at chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. And so Jesus says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can, it be ma- how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Not the most uplifting text there, is it? How many times was hell mentioned there? But this is a reality that Jesus is, is saying, this is, this is something y'all really need to get. Not only you guys in the first century that are with me, but us. There are some attitudes and practices going on among the disciples that Jesus has to address and has to call them out on. And what do we need to know here? Well, causing a little one, and it's not just a young child or a baby or somebody that's learning, but I think it's anybody who believes in Jesus. He says anyone who causes them to stumble or turns them away from God is a serious matter to him. You're supposed to be bringing people to God, not pushing them away. And it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the... Y'all know what a millstone is? I'm probably most of the adults, but kids. I remember going to Stone Mountain as a kid. You remember they had that mill there? And I remember as a kid seeing that for the first time and making that connection to this parable and going, oh my goodness. You would not survive if that was around your neck. And that's what Jesus was saying. That's how seriously he takes that. Developing attitudes and allowing and practicing things in our lives that we know cause sin in our own lives, but also maybe leads others to sin, is a serious issue for Jesus. He says it'd be better for us to go through life minus a hand, minus a foot, minus an eye, than to continue going and leading people astray because hell is where that ultimately leads. Now, I know we don't like to talk about hell and hear about that. I'm so judgmental. I don't want to hear that. And none of us think we're going there because we're all good, right? It's the way we kind of think things. But why do we need to know this? Because my life and your life and our attitudes and our practices and our actions, they affect others every single day. And I'm not just talking about your family and your friends, but just when people see you somewhere out and they see the way you behave, it makes an impression, doesn't it? You ever been somewhere and see somebody behaving in a way and you just go, golly, seriously? 
So I had to, Friday night I went to a, a birthday party that I didn't know I was going to actually participate in. I thought I was going to drop my son off, but then I found out, no, you're actually going to urban jungle and doing this thing. <laughs> or urban air, I'm sorry, the urban air, you know, where you do the, the, the trampoline part. And y'all, I'm so sore today, I can't hardly move because I hadn't jumped on a trampoline like that in a long time. So anyway, it was a lot of fun. But what the reason I bring that up is I saw some parents in there talking to their kids in a way that I go, are you kidding me? I mean, like literally screaming and saying things to their kids that I'm going, I can't believe you're talking to your kid that way out in public. Because I mean, at least fake it in public and not do that. But I thought, if you're talking to your kid like that in here, I can't imagine what kind of language you're using to your kid in your house. And I thought, you know, I just looked at some of those kids and go, man, they're supposed to be having fun. Now, you know, I get it. I have five kids, and they, they can try your patience. And I've yelled at my kids and, you know, had to go back for, uh, you know, forgiveness and stuff like that. But this just really bothered me, and I thought about how that can happen sometimes. And I thought, I'm trying to have a good time, but I'm bothered by this. Every time I saw that little kid, I was looking at that parent going, man, what, what are they going to do next to make you mad? You know, and it does make an impression the way we do. But why do we need to know this? Because my life and your life, it, it affects others. But also, the things that I practice in my life are leading me somewhere. The things that you're practicing in your life are leading you somewhere. They're either leading you uh, towards wisdom, like we talked about last week, or they're leading you towards foolishness, towards good or towards bad, towards a solid foundation of your life built on Christ or on a, 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 a foundation that's weak and not of Christ, on the sand, as Jesus talked about last week, or towards God or away from God. That's where our actions are leading us. And remember from last week, I had that phrase that my friend taught me. I thought he was going to say practice makes perfect, but he said practice makes permanent. The things that we practice become a permanent part of our lives. So what do we need to do? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves some, some really difficult and hard questions. And I think that's what Jesus has challenged his disciples to do in us. We have to ask ourselves some hard questions about where are my practices, where are my habits and my actions leading me or someone else. Because we have a lot more influence than I think we understand at our jobs and kids at school. I think you don't really realize there's people watching you all the time and you have an opportunity for influence and we ought to use that in a proper way. I think Jesus is what Jesus is saying. And those things that I'm practicing, are they causing me to stumble in my own life? Are they causing other people to stumble? The people that are in my environment that see how I act and behave, am I causing them to stumble? And this is very sobering as a parent because your kid will do something. You go, what in the world? What did you do that for? Why, you know, why did you, where did you learn that from? And then it's like, mm, that'd be you. Most of it comes from us. They see these. Now, I know they don't live in a bubble and they have kids at school and it's easy to go, oh, that's because those kids at school they hang out with. But a lot of times they see things in our lives that we need to change and maybe break down in our own lives. So in my family, in my work, in my business, in my school, in our activities, in our recreation, in our hobbies, in my leisure time, in my screen time, what am I doing that's leading me towards God or away from God? What am I practicing on my screen time that's leading me towards God or away from God? Well, why do we need to ask these questions? Because we need to constantly evaluate our thoughts, our behaviors, and our actions if we're going to be a serious follower of Jesus. And Jesus makes it clear that there are serious consequences for those who uh, cause those who believe in me to stumble. And we need to think about that constantly in our behaviors. And I know it's hard, but it's important. He uses the phrase, it would be better, and he describes these three situations that would be better than going into hell. It'd be better to go into life without one of your hands. Can you imagine? 
just all of a sudden you didn't have your hand anymore. How would that feel? There's a, there's a lady that works, um, I think it's at the Dollar General in Palmetto that I go into every now and then, and she didn't have a hand on one hand, y'all, and one of her hands missing. And she checks people out and does the, ca- I mean, it's amazing. Every time I go in there, I go, I got nothing to complain about. And I'm very impressed by that. But I thought, can you imagine trying to get through life with that? Or a foot without one of your feet. Can you imagine the, the balance? Very difficult. Or not having one of your eyes. And, but Jesus is saying, it's better to do that than to go to hell. Now again, there's the, oh man, you know, why you got to do that? Is somebody here for the first time, Craig? They're not coming back because that hellfire stuff. But guess what? Jesus talked about it. And if Jesus talked about it, it was a reality. But Jesus didn't just talk about it. He's given us a warning. That's not what I want for you. That's not what I want for any of my children. That's not what God created to be eternally separated from God. And that's what hell is. He describes it as a horrific place of fire and a place where there is separation eternally from God. I don't think we would even understand what that is. Because even people now, here and now, who are maybe atheists and don't believe God or mad at God and want to be separated from God, they're really not because guess what? You are made in God's image. You have his DNA whether you like it or not, whether you're mad at him or not. And God's okay if you're mad at him, but he wants to draw you closer to him. And he's done that ultimately through the cross. But he, he, you know, eternal separation from God, that's what he's warning us against. It would be better to go through life with all these awful things. And if we learn anything from the Old Testament and the Old Covenant is this. That is the Jews were unfaithful to God in that covenant they had with him. He said, no, you've got to stay faithful to this covenant and to me. But they all of a sudden they looked at their neighbors and like, I kind of like the way they worship. And they started dabbling in this uh, occultish type worship. And God was furious about this and was upset about this. Their practices, their behaviors continually led them away from God, not towards God, but away from God, and others away from God. And eventually, they destroyed the covenant they made with God. And at the end of the Old Testament, we see where the temple was finally just destroyed, and they thought that would never happen. But it did because their practices took them away from God. So how do our hands and our feet and our eyes cause us to stumble? Well, obviously, those body parts represent things that we do that cause us to sin and cause us to to separate ourselves from God. Certainly, our hands and feet are part of participating in a thought we have. And our hands and our feet and our eyes, they all are working together to do these things that can put action into practice that leads us away from God. But Jesus is really telling his disciples and us to practice this kind of, is he really saying, hey, I want you to practice this kind of masochistic type thing and just cut your hand off to let everybody know that you're serious. Because I'm going, was he serious about that? Does he really expect us to, to cut our hands off if we're sinning or cut our foot off or gouge our eyes out? I mean, that's crazy. That's the kind of stuff that's manipulative, that's barbaric. That's cruel. That's the type of stuff that we hear about some kind of fanatical leader that's trying to require allegiance from his, his followers. That seems crazy, Jesus. Why would you even say that stuff? But he's trying to make a point. And a lot of you might think, as we can speculate, that Jesus was talking and using that literary term called hyperbole. Remember that in English class? I was just good to learn to say it. Hyperbole is what I used to say, you know. Hyperbole. We know what that is, but Jesus was using that literary term just to push on a point. He didn't really mean literally we need to cut off our hand, and I tend to believe that. But here's the problem. There's a danger in taking it seriously. 
Like if I said after the service, I expect at least 10 people before we take communion this morning to come up here and cut off something. Well, y'all be heading for the doors and wouldn't be back, I can promise you. I'd be the only one. Because that, be, that would be crazy. No, it's hyperbole, Craig. He didn't really mean that. But here's the danger on the other side of that. Yes, it would be dangerous to take that serious. And quite honestly, through history, there have been some monks and people that did do some cutting off of things over the years to try to get themselves closer to God. And I guess if that worked for them, but I don't, I'm not sure Jesus was Jesus really meaning that. But the danger on the other side is, is to try to clean up or mo- modify or dull the edge of Jesus' sharp words here. And what I mean by that is is that we fail to grasp the seriousness of what he's calling us to as disciples and followers of him, that it's serious. And my behavior and your behavior does make a difference in those around us, and we ought to always be looking at that. So we can reduce Jesus' words to hyperbole. And if I can reduce it to hyperbole, there's a danger of saying, well, then I can just uh, reduce it to this abstract thing. And this is what politicians, this is what people all over the world do all the time. We just take a feeling about a, uh, an event or, or an issue. And I have this strong feeling I can stand up in front of Congress or in front of a bunch of people or even in the pulpit as a preacher and I can have all kind of feelings about an issue. But until people really see where the rubber meets the road and that's my actions consistently in everyday life, they don't, they don't care. They want to see that that's real. It can't just be a concept Without action, without lifestyle change, or we reduce it to something that's not really real. So one commentator said this, and I really like what he said. He says, Jesus, however, deliberately chose harsh, scandalous imagery to alert disciples that their lives tremble in the balance. That's what he was saying to them and to us. Indifference to others, inducing others to sin, and a lackadaisical disregard for sin in your own life imperils one's salvation. One should be careful not to mute the imagery and muffle Jesus' alarm. And that's what we try to do sometimes. Well, just trying to scare people. No, I think there really is going to be a place of hell that Jesus was referring to, and he doesn't want anybody to go there, and it does matter. How does Jesus' harsh, scandalous imagery of mutilation make you feel? Does it kind of scare you? Well, I'll tell you what scares me worse, y'all, is hell. Eternal separation from God. He doesn't want us to go there. And I'm not trying just to scare you. I'm going, Jesus said this stuff. We have to look at it and say, how does it affect me? What does it motivate or inspire you to cut off in your life right now and move towards God? And, you know, I was talking about in the, uh, in the Old Testament, you know, they, they were close to God. I know this is not a good representation of God, but I'm just going to use And they were so close to God, but then as they realized, hey, we're God's chosen people, and it's great. Well, eventually we started kind of moving. Hey, my neighbor's over here doing this, and that's kind of cool. I want to do that, but but that's not who you were called to be. Yeah, but I just want to kind of, I'm still going to do this, but I'm going to do this too. And that's what they did, kind of a smorgasbord of religion practices. And they just kept mingling, and the, the more they mingled, the further they got from God, and now they're away from God. But God, we're your people, so we're, we're, we're still good, but no. Eventually, God said, you broke the covenant. And that's why we had to have, what, a new covenant in Christ. And that's why Jesus ultimately had to come. And so I want us to think in these things. There's things that you're doing. There's things that I'm doing in my life. Some of us are practicing. And these things are, are, are yeah, we know God. And maybe we've been brought up to God. Or maybe we've been hurt by someone. And it's kind of made us scared. Of God, but we're, we're, we're getting away from God. And the more we distance ourselves from God, then we know less of God. We understand God. I think I'm hiding from God. 
And he's saying the ultimate, go- the ultimate result of that is eternally is eternal separation from God. Well, I've got plenty of time. I'll, I'll, get, to, I'll get my act together. But we don't know, do we? Y'all, let me tell you something. One of our sound guys back there, Corey Brooks, I don't think he's here today, but he had a wreck this week where his car, he said he was going along at 65 miles an hour, and he, he had it on cruise control. I think somebody ran a stop sign or a red light. T-boned him. He went rolling six times, landed on the top, and walked away from it. I mean, when we saw the images of the car, I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm just saying that. You never know, do you? You never know. And so Jesus is trying to say, y'all need to wake up and realize you want to be close to God always. Because bad things are going to happen to you, but when you're close to God, he's going to be there for you. But when you try to distance yourself and then also, oh, I got, oh God, help me out now, well, it's, it's hard to get back. Not that God doesn't and he doesn't love us, but we, we need to, to take that seriously, what he's talking about. There's no doubt that some of us are practicing things that are pushing us away from God. And there needs to be some evasive and radical surgery like Jesus is talking about in our lives to get us back towards God. And if we're the church, guess what? We need to hold each other accountable to doing that. And that's not fun, is it? I don't like to hear somebody tell me I need to straighten my life up. But here's the deal. You don't need me to tell me what you need to straighten up in your life. And I don't need you to tell me what to straighten up in my life. I got this. And as long as we have that attitude, guess what? You mind your business, I'll mind mine, and guess what? We're going to grow really tight in Christ, aren't we? Nope, sure not. Now, I know accountability is hard, and it takes relationship, but I hope that we have the type of church that somebody at some point will come up to me and say, Craig, put his arm around me and say, this is what I see, and because I love you, I'm telling you this. Now, I can be a fool, like Proverbs talks about it, and I can say, that's none of your business. Mind your own business. Or I can be a wise man and go, thank you, number one, for having the gall to come to me and tell me you see something in my life that needs to change thank you i know that you love me and i won't try to change but we've got to be that kind of thing that's what jesus is saying to the disciples why are you telling people not to drive out demons why are you trying to make this exclusive it's inclusive salvation is inclusive for everyone so what do you need to cut off today what do you need to what surgery do you need to do in your lives? I don't know what that is for you, but I want you to seriously think about it. I want to give you a story as we close today about someone who did some pretty radical surgery in their life. You may have heard of this, this lady. Her name, was, uh, her name is Kylie Basuti. And at the age of 19 in 2009, she was one of 10,000 contestants that were trying to win the Victoria's Secret Model Search Contest. And out of those 10,000 contestants, she won. She became the Victoria's Secret model that year. And she says, uh, but after that, she got married and she became a Christian. And she said, I started growing in my Christian faith. And my faith started to see that my career in a very different light than the way I originally saw it. In an interview, she said, the modeling world is very hard industry to be in without falling into things you don't really want to fall into. It's very tempting industry. And Victoria's Secret was my absolutely biggest goal in life, and it was all I ever wanted career-wise. But I'm a Christian now, and reading the Bible more, I was becoming more and more convicted about it. My body should be only for my husband, not for all those other men out there. It should be a sacred thing, and I wasn't taking it as that. 
I really didn't want to be that kind of role model for younger girls because I had a lot of younger Christian girls that were looking up to me and then thinking it was okay to walk around and show their bodies in lingerie to guys. It was pretty crazy because I finally achieved the biggest dream, the dream that I always wanted, but then I finally got it, and it wasn't all I thought it was. And y'all, you know that she ended up quitting that job as a Victoria's Secret model. That's a lot of money, isn't it? That's a lot of fame. That's a lot of accolades. Like, oh my gosh, you're so beautiful. All the time, everywhere you go. But she was willing to sever that out of her life because she had become convicted of what she was really called to be. And she ended up writing a book in 2013, a memoir called I'm No Angel from Victoria's Secret Model to Role Model. And now I think she does a clothing line with a a relative that is actually specifically for kids that has scripture verses on it. And she's undergone a lot of criticism from Victoria's Secret and the rest of the modeling world about she's a fanatic and she's crazy. Why would anybody give that kind of stuff up? But me, for one, respects her immensely for what she did because she did exactly what Jesus has called us to do. And that's a hard thing. And it's a hard thing for all of us to pick and choose those things in our life that we need to cut out. And it, it, sometimes it takes us a while to get it through our heads, doesn't it? So this morning I want to challenge you with that. God is rich in mercy. And he made the way for us to reconnect to him and draw back to him. And it's not by our practice of good things. We don't do these good things to get in God's graces. No, God gave us grace. And we do these things because we are grateful for his grace. Not by our practice of good things, but by our acceptance of his amazing grace and that our resurrection from our old way of life to God's new way of life in Christ that leads me toward God in everything that I do. And we need to be being led towards God in everything that we do. So maybe somebody here today needs to take a first step towards maybe some radical surgery. And we're not going to make you cut your arm off or gouge your eye. We're simply going to ask you to come and say... I want to name Jesus as my Lord and Savior and start moving back towards him. That's what I want to do. So we're going to give that invitation this morning. But we're also going to encourage you, maybe you're looking for a church home, and we are not a perfect church at all by any means. we got our issues. But I do believe we're a church that wants to um, encourage and equip and challenge each other in the way that we live every day. And we got to be open to that and say, hey, I'm going to let you, I'm inviting you into my life to speak truth into me and hold me accountable. And I would like to do that for you as well, but that's got to be something you decide. So we're going to offer those uh, two opportunities this morning as Kevin's going to lead us in a song in just just a minute. And we're going to go into a time of communion. And we do this every week here at Southwest. We take uh, a little piece of bread that reminds us of the um, body of Christ that hung on that cross to give us connection back with God once again. And we take a little cup of juice that reminds us of the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of all of mankind, all of humankind's sins throughout history. And we've got some people in a minute uh, who are going to serve that to you where you are. But before we do, we want to sing a song to help get us in the frame of mind to take that piece of bread and and, and cup of juice. If you're here for the first time today and you're a, a guest and you're not a member of our church, that doesn't matter. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate in communion with us this morning. If you're a believer and you would like to, we welcome you to be a part of that. If you're not comfortable with that, that's all right as well. But that's the time we're going into right now. So Kevin's going to lead us in a song. And if you have a decision you want to make this morning, you just come forward and I'll be glad to walk you through that, pray with you. But we're going to try to prepare our hearts for communion as we stand and sing together.